Revelation chapter 3 is where we'll be tonight, and uh, we're going through the series, Marks of a Healthy Church. And uh, we are looking at these uh, different churches in the New Testament and uh, learning lessons from them and finding out what God commends and what God uh, condemns in each of these churches and kind of making sure that we're, as a church, lining up with uh, the things that God uh, commends and making sure that we're avoiding things that God condemns in a church and, uh, and rebukes. We want to make sure that we're not having those same things in our church. And the way that works is making sure those aren't in our in own individual lives. And so that's why uh, it, it's not just, oh, our church. It's, how am I doing in this area? And so we've looked at several churches of the New Testament, and we're going through these seven from the, books, the book of Revelation. Chapter 2 and 3 addresses seven different churches. And uh, Revelation chapter 3, uh, if you would join me in standing, we'll read uh, verses 7 through verse 13 tonight. And uh, we're going to be hitting the sixth church of, uh, of Revelation chapters 2 and 3, 6 of 7. And, and next week, Lord willing, we'll be in, um, in the last one, Laodicea. But tonight we'll be talking about the church at Philadelphia. Uh, verse 7 of Revelation 3 says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth, and no man shutteth, and shutteth, and no man openeth. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee. And because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I will also keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out, and I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. And then this famous closing here, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. And let's pray together. Lord, thank you for the wonderful day in your house. Thank you for... Uh, each one that's here tonight, and I pray, Lord, that uh, you would speak to our hearts from this passage. Help us to grow in our faith and in our relationship with you. Help us, Lord, to learn the lessons from this particular assembly that you have called out, that you have mentioned in your word. Um, and we pray these things in your name. Amen. Thank you. you may be seated. So out of the seven churches that Christ addressed in Revelations 2 and 3, only two were not rebuked, had, had no rebuke from the Lord, only, only praise. And so only two of these churches were, were praised by Christ uh, exclusively with, with no rebuke at all. Uh, one of them, of course, we've already talked about, and that was the church at Smyrna. And then this church here, the church at Philadelphia. Now, this was a weak church, but it was a wonderful church in the eyes of Christ. And so we don't have to be a strong church in the world's eyes or in the eyes of even 
other Christians. We need to make sure, though, that we are a wonderful church in the eyes of our Lord. Uh, Most of us are aware that the name Philadelphia means, well, what does it mean? Brotherly love, right. It means brotherly love. And and I've been, how many have been to Philadelphia here in America? A uh, few of us have been there. Uh, I got the privilege of going there, oh, about uh, 20, 21, 22 years ago. And, uh, well, it was about, yeah, 20, 21 years ago. It was on the 4th of July, and so we got to see the fireworks there in Philadelphia. That was pretty special. Uh, we went to go see the Liberty Bell. We went to uh, the Mint over there in Philadelphia, if you've ever had the chance to go walk through that. Um, that was pretty interesting, and um, going over to see where they signed uh, the Declaration of Independence, um, that was a pretty interesting place. Uh, we enjoyed being there. It is the, it is the city of brotherly love. Uh, well, at least that's what it's supposed to be. I suppose if you're from Philadelphia, it's the city of brotherly love, but if you root for anybody but the Eagles there or the Phillies, you're, you're in trouble. Well, uh, that was such the case here in this in this town. It was a good it was a good place to be. Um, in fact, uh, the brotherly love, the Greek word Philadelphia, is uh, closely found in First uh, Peter chapter three and verse eight. And if you were in our Sunday school class, we talked about this verse quite a bit. First Peter three eight says, "Finally, be all of one mind, having compassion one of another, love as brethren." Be pitiful, be courteous. But that phrase, love as brethren, is a, uh, the, the Greek word for that is a form of Philadelphia. It's, uh, it's not quite Philadelphia, but it has that same connotation, to love as brethren. And so uh, that was the, uh, the focus there in this church. Now, as far as the town of Philadelphia goes, it was a city of uh, Lydia in Asia Minor. It was about 25 miles southeast of Sardis. Uh, which we uh, highlighted last Sunday night. It came into the possession of the Turks in A.D. 1392, and it has several times been nearly destroyed by earthquakes. Uh, So evidently, Southern California is not the only place that earthquakes take place. Um, It is uh, still a town of considerable size called Al-Shehir, the city of God in Turkey. And it's still in existence, and uh, it's still an actual working, functioning uh, town. You could go look it up. So that's a little bit about the church, the, the town and the area of Philadelphia. But let's kind of dive into this passage and, and, uh, and look at some things. First of all, I want us to look here in verse number 7 and see the description of Christ. The description of Christ. Now, in each one of these letters, um, as, as it's written... Uh, there's a description of who's writing, and it gives a little bit of insight as to who he is and and, uh, his nature and all of that. And we've basically just briefly mentioned those as we've gone through, but on this one, I want to dive into this and kind of unpack this particular verse and dissect it a little bit. Verse number 7 says, "...and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true." He that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. And in this verse, we see some descriptions of who our Lord Jesus Christ really is. First of all, it says that he is holy. These things saith he that is holy. Uh, One of God's chiefest attributes is 
His holiness. If you recall, this is the only attribute that is mentioned. He is holy, holy, holy. And that's mentioned two times, once in Isaiah chapter 6 and once in the book of Revelation. And uh, the idea is that he is thrice holy. He is set apart um, and he is, he, uh, he, he is truly holy. Now, he was holy at, before he uh, was born in uh, Luke chapter number 30, Luke chapter 1, verse 35. The angel answered and said unto her, the Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, her being Mary. The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. So he was holy even before he was born because he's always been God. But then when he was born, in Acts chapter number uh, 2 and verse 22 or as he was living, I should say, uh, here walking upon this earth, it talks about the fact that he was holy then too, because thou will not leave my soul in hell, neither will thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. And talking about the fact that Jesus wasn't going to rot uh, there in the grave, but he wasn't going to see corruption. And then uh, then Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26, um, talks about the fact that he is currently holy, Uh, For such an high priest became us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. So in other words, he always was and is and always will be holy. Um, We're reminded in Peter to be holy just because we should be holy, right? Uh, The reason we're called to be holy is because That's his attribute. That's who he is. And we're to be conformed into the image of Christ. And if we're going to be conformed to the image of Christ, we're going to need to live holy lives. I read a a blog article recently that that captures the essence of of, uh, the difference between happiness and holiness. Here's the uh, article. I remember the phone call and subsequent conversations that forever changed my life vividly. It's my time to be happy. It was my father's voice giving me one of the reasons he was leaving my mother after nearly 30 years. My father was walking away from his job and marriage in the pursuit of happiness. And aren't you glad we live in America, which gives us the the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. goes on to say, I would love to say that my experiences at the hands of happy are unique, but over the past year I've watched happy break apart multiple marriages, damage churches, and shatter families. My heart aches as I watch the fallout that occurs when happy trumps holy. I watch friends and myself make life-changing decisions based on what would make them more happy instead of more holy. Happiness has become our idol. Why are we not pursuing holiness with the same passion with which we are pursuing happiness? How have we come to allow ourselves to put more trust in a fleeting emotion than than in a God who says, Blessed are they who hunger and thirst. After righteousness, blessed are the pure in heart. See, happiness is a perilous thing. 
It focuses our attention on who? On ourselves. And how we are feeling in the moment. But of course, moments change. People change. Happiness will not hold. It is a season, a a side effect when, when things are going well and your dopamine levels are up. Happiness is great to enjoy in the moment, but to spend a lifetime chasing it warps it into the idol we have made it out to be. Happiness is not something to pursue. Holiness is something to pursue. And I want to challenge us as as a church family to not pursue happiness, but to pursue holiness. And oftentimes when we choose to focus on holiness in our lives, we'll end up being the right type of happy. We'll have a joy that's not fleeting. Holiness. And we see here that one of the descriptions of Jesus Christ is that He is holy, and we cannot forget that He is holy. I know that holiness doesn't mean the same as it used to mean in our culture today, but I'm telling you, He's holy. And and, uh, I was reading about the sun and how hot that sun is. Later this week, it's going to be 100 degrees here in Oklahoma. But the heat index is probably going to be 187 degrees in many of our minds, right? And as hot as, hot as that is, I'm telling you, it pales. It's, it's a freezer compared to the surface of the sun. You might know someone in your life who you would say, that person is, is really holy. Maybe even they're triple-digit holy. But their holiness, again, pales in comparison to the Son of God and His holiness. It would be wise for us, like Isaiah of old, to get a glimpse of how holy our Lord is. When He saw Jesus there on the throne, high and lifted up, Uh, He was immediately aware of his unholiness. He was immediately aware of his sin. And it would be wise for us to have times like that in our lives where we get a glimpse of our God. So the first description of, of Jesus here in this passage is that he is holy. But also, next, we see that he is true. He is true. Verse 7, again, these things saith he that is holy, he that is true. We mentioned this morning fake news. He is the furthest thing from fake news you will ever find. He is the truest thing. He is the the realest reality ever. John 14, 6, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And John 17, 17, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. What, what is the word there? I'm sure we mostly think of the word of God as the Bible, and rightfully so. But if you recall back at the beginning of the book of John, we learn that Jesus also is the word of God. That he is the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and later it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We know that Jesus is the Word, and 
He says, thy word is truth. In other words, he's saying, I am truth. Look, the closer you get to Christ, the closer you get to truth. And it is that truth that sets us free. And so I know that uh, many of us are, are learning and growing, and hopefully, you know, they, they say you never get out of school, you never stop learning. And I hope that we are learning, but I hope we're learning things that would point us to Christ, to the real truth. We need to make sure that our education is, is leading us to a closer relationship with Him and a greater understanding of who He is. He is true. He is holy. He is true. And then also we see in this verse here, He is sovereign. Look again in verse 7. These things saith He that is holy, He that is true, and then He that hath the key of David. He that openeth, and no man shutteth, and shutteth, and no man openeth. He has the key of David. This is a special key, by the way. And uh, it would be an interesting study. I, I started to study it, and I realized I was kind of getting off a sidetrack um, on studying the keys in the Bible. There are several keys mentioned in the Word of God, and I would encourage you to do some study on your own, and uh, that would be a fascinating and interesting study. But, um, but this, this particular key, the key of David, is is a fulfillment found a fulfillment of the prophecy found in Isaiah chapter 22 verse 22 and and if you have a bible that has cross references you'll probably see that in the in the cross reference portion here Isaiah 22:22 22, says and the key of the house of David will I lay upon his shoulder so he shall open and none shall shut and he shall shut and none shall open and so here this is the fulfillment of that prophecy found in, found in the book, uh, or in, in Isaiah chapter 22. There's another key that I'll, I just was looking up and, and came across, and the keys of hell and death. Revelation 1.18 says, I am he that liveth and was dead. Behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. He has the keys, and sometimes he ends up giving the keys to others. He gave one of the keys to Peter. He gave one of the keys to the fifth angel in Revelation chapter 9. You see, he has the keys because he is the sovereign Lord and he is the authority in charge and is always in control. He is the final word and his will cannot be undone. Notice in verse 7, He that openeth and no man shutteth. God opens the door and Try as you might, you're not going to be able to shut that door. And the doors that he shuts, try as you might, you're not going to open them. He's the sovereign Lord. And by the way, I want to just encourage us regarding God's sovereignty here. When God shuts a door in our life to stop trying to pound on the door, stop trying to break it down, stop trying to pick its lock, trust him. Let him shut that door. Let him lead. Let him guide and direct. He's good to do that. Stop fighting it. I know that there's a lot of people, a lot of Christians, who do fight when God does close a door in their life. And they do their best to try to keep that door open because, no, I really want to go through this door. Or maybe God uh, opens a door and they said, uh, nah, I ain't going through that door. <laughs> that's too scary. Uh, no, that's not what I want. And the Lord says, I'm not closing that door. 
You can try to shut it, but it ain't closing. Just walk through it. And God is sovereign, and, and uh, you can try to change it, but you can't. He's in control. And the sooner we realize that, the, the, I was going to say the happier we are. We just, I just preached about not being happy. But you know what I mean. It, the, the more peace we'll have where we're not trying to fight God. Let God win. C.H. Spurgeon uh, said regarding the sovereignty of God, he said, there's no attribute more comforting to his children than that of God's sovereignty. Under the most adverse circumstances, in the most severe trials, they believe that sovereignty has ordained their afflictions, that sovereignty overrules them, and that sovereignty will sanctify them all. There is nothing for which the children ought to more earnestly contend to than the doctrine of their master over all creation, the kingship of God over all the works of his own hands, the throne of God and his right to sit upon that throne, for it is God upon the throne whom we trust. Again, we, when we covered that attribute on Sunday morning a few weeks ago, uh, as we were going through the series, How Great Thou Art, talking about the attributes of God, when we came to the sovereignty of God, the big concept and the big response that we all should have is great trust in the Lord. Stop trying to control God. He has got it under control. And He's able to control it much better than you could if you were allowed to. He knows what's best. Trust Him and stop trying to pound the door down or shut the door when you don't want to go through the entryway. So we see a very important description of Christ in this passage before we even get to uh, what He has to say to the churches or to the church here. But I do want to get to that. And so notice secondly here tonight, the deeds of the church. The deeds of the church in verse number 8. Here Jesus says, I know thy works once again. And uh, we've mentioned as we've gone through this, he said this to each of the churches. I know thy works. He knows what goes on in every church. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door and no man can shut it. There it is again. (laughs) No man's going to be able to shut this door. I'm sovereign. I'm in control. And uh, try as they might, they're not going to be able to shut it. And he says, for thou hast a little strength and hast kept my word and hast not denied my name. Notice here that it says, thou hast a little strength. They were of little strength. And that may not seem like a great compliment. He wasn't trying to compliment or rebuke. It was simply, he's stating a matter of fact. This is a church that didn't have a lot of strength. Now, what does that mean? Well, it could have meant that they had uh, just a little bit of energy and they were weary from the battle. Could have meant that. Could have meant that they were few in number. That's certainly a possibility. Uh, maybe a smaller church assembly and uh, didn't have a lot of means and a lot of ability financially maybe to do much. But, and it could mean that, uh, that they were very poor. Um, one of the commentators I was reading and uh, one thing with commentators is they are just that, right? Commentators. Um, and so we need to be careful not to put too much trust in them, but they are helpful. And I do appreciate some of the wisdom that I could glean from studying uh, what they had to say. 
But uh, one, one uh, Bible dictionary and, or commentator uh, commented that there was a lot of earthquakes in this region of the world uh, during that time. And as a result, uh, that probably was a drain on people's finances because constantly having to rebuild, constantly having to, uh, you know, not be in a very stable scenario. Um, and so that was a possible reason why God said there that they were uh, little in strength. Whatever the reason was, they were of little strength, and we don't exactly know. But God oftentimes, as I was thinking about this, God oftentimes uses the unlikely ones to accomplish big things. Ones who were maybe of little stature, maybe of little means, maybe of uh, little strength to do big and great things. I think about David, and I, we mentioned him a, a couple weeks ago, who was overlooked when Samuel came to Jesse's house looking for the next king of Israel because he was the least in his, his, uh, his father's house. And Gideon's personal testimony was that his family... <coughs> excuse me, let me grab some water here. Uh, Gideon's personal testimony was that his family was poor and that he was the least in his father's house. And of course, most of us know the story of Gideon and how he went on to defeat an entire army with only how many men? 300. 300 men. And it was Paul who commented to the church at Corinth, God hath chosen the foolish things of the world that confound the wise. God hath chosen the weak things of the world that confound the things which are mighty and base things of the world and things which are despised. Hath God chosen... Yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in His presence. So many times a lot of Christians think that, you know, if, if so-and-so famous athlete would just get saved, be a voice for God, boy, how many people would also get saved? I mean, why wouldn't God do that? Because they have such a platform. I mean, they have a million plus followers on all the social media platforms. Well, what about a movie star? I mean, if, if, if one of these big namers, these A-listers, really God gets a hold of their heart, and boy, what kind of, what kind of impact could be made with their life if they just get serious for God and get saved? Or a famous singer would become a Christian. What kind of a powerful witness they would be. And I know that God has done that here and there throughout history. That God has transformed a, a person with great uh, influence and, and, uh, and popularity. But normally, God's MO is to use the ordinary to accomplish the extraordinary. You know why? So that no flesh will glory in His presence. So that I can't say, well, yeah, I'm a famous athlete, and therefore, that's why everybody got saved. Well, if that's the case, then I get the glory. But if I'm just a nobody, talking to a lot of anybody's about the greatest somebody there ever was, then he gets the credit for doing great and mighty things. Not me, because I'm the little guy. I'm of little strength. And uh, I take great uh, comfort and encouragement from that because that is how I feel about myself. I know I'm not much, but I 
am willing to be used of the Lord. And if he does decide to use me in a great way, then I know I'm not going to get the glory for it. It's going to all go to him. So they were of little strength, but there's a couple wonderful attributes of this church. In spite of their little strength, here's what they were. First of all, they were obedient to Christ. Again, verse number eight, the last part, for thou hast a little strength and hast kept my word. Thou hast kept my word. They were careful to hold on to the word of God and to be careful to obey. They kept his word in spite of their lack of strength and their weakness, perhaps. They were careful to hold on to the word of God. Oswald Chambers uh, wrote this. He said, I've read that when Edward VI, the king of England in the 16th century, attended a worship service, he stood while the word of God was read. He took notes during this time and later studied them with great care. Well, through the week, he earnestly tried to apply them to his life. That's the kind of serious-minded response to truth that the Apostle James calls for in in, uh, the Scripture reading of James chapter 1 and and, uh, later in that chapter. A single revealed fact cherished in the heart and acted upon is more vital to our growth than a head filled with lofty ideas about God. One step forward in obedience is worth years of study about it. And I've said before, and I'll say again, the biggest problem that I have is not ignorance in the Christian life. The biggest problem I have is disobedience. I know there are some areas in which I do need to grow in my knowledge. There are some things that I am still learning and and, uh, I am ignorant about, but The things that I know and don't do are my biggest struggle. And God wants us to keep his word and to obey him. It was Jesus who said in John 14, verse 15, If you love me, keep my commandments. I know all of us would say, oh yes, I love Jesus. I'll even wear a shirt that says I love Jesus or put a bumper sticker on my car that says I love Jesus. But really... In, in Christ's mind, the only way for him to verify and confirm that you indeed love him is whether you are obedient to his commands or not. So if you love me, keep my commandments. So I ask, are you obedient to the word of God? Here's some areas in which the word of God addresses that I want to ask you. Are you obedient in this? Have you obeyed his word by believing on Christ? Have you placed your faith in Christ alone for salvation? Because his word tells us to do that. Have you been obedient in that? Have you been obedient in the area of baptism? Have you been saved and not yet followed him in baptism for one reason or another? I'm telling you, his word teaches that, and we need to be obedient to the word of God in baptism. And really... I'll tell you a personal illustration. It wasn't until I got baptized when I was 16 years old, and for those who remember, I got saved when I was 12, so four years transpired between my salvation and my baptism. It wasn't until I got baptized. It wasn't until I took that first step as a believer by by following the Lord and believer's baptism that I really started to grow in my Christian life. And so if you're here tonight and you've not 
yet been baptized, I want to encourage you to follow the Lord in this area. To be obedient to the Word of God in baptism. Uh, What about this? Maybe you've been coming to our church. Are you officially part of a local church? Are you officially part of a local body of believers? Young people, are you honoring and obeying your parents? Oh, maybe you're obeying them and doing what they've called you to do and asked you to do, but you do so with a stinking attitude. I can tell you this, that's not very honoring. And God wants us to be obedient to the Word of God in that area. What about this? Husbands, are we being the spiritual leader in our homes? Because God's Word teaches husbands and fathers to lead their homes to a closer relationship with God. And we're to be the watchmen in our homes and to spiritually protect our children and our wives from the the influences of the world. Are we doing that, husbands and dads? Wives, are you lovingly following and submitting to your husband's leadership in your home? Or are you thorn in his flesh? Because you won't submit and you won't let him lead. Christian, are you spending time with the Lord in his word and in prayer each day? Because God's word teaches us to do that. Are you being a witness in your community? A lot of areas in which we need to kind of ask ourselves, am I being obedient to the word of God? This church, they were of little strength, but they decided that they were going to be obedient to Christ and do his word. I hope that you'll make that same decision. But not only were they obedient to Christ, but they were also loyal to Christ. Again, look in verse number eight. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and then hast not denied my name. So there was a loyalty here that Christ points out that he noticed in this church family. That others were perhaps forsaking. When others were forsaking Christ, this this feeble, weak church stayed true to the name of Christ. When I think of loyalty to Christ, I think of a man who was on both sides of the fence of loyalty. At one point in his life, he was Mr. Fickle. But later on in his life, he turned out to be Mr. Faithful. And his name was Peter. You remember how he promised the Lord that it wouldn't happen to him. When when he said, others are going to deny me, he said, it's not going to happen to me. I'm ready to go to prison to you. I'm ready to even die for you, Lord. Jesus said, okay, well, I'm telling you, by the time that that rooster crows, you're going to deny me thrice. Whatever, it's not going to happen. We all know the story, how it did. I'm thankful that when he got right with God and he repented of his disloyalty, he became extremely loyal to the point where he was a martyr for Christ and History tells us that he was crucified and he didn't want to be crucified just like his Lord. He wanted to be crucified upside down. Loyalty to Christ. Are you loyal to Christ? Paul said to the Romans, he said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. He told Timothy, God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and love and of a sound mind. And then he said, Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. 
God's not given us the spirit of fear. And many of us may never face a time where we are going to be persecuted for our faith, but maybe we will. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. This is something he told a preacher. But guess what? All of us are called to be preachers, aren't we? Preachers of the gospel of Christ, preachers of the gospel to every creature. Yes, we're all preachers to some extent. In that same passage, in verse 12, it says, For the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Loyalty to Christ. Paul decided that he was going to be loyal. He was encouraging Timothy to be loyal. He was encouraging the church at Rome to be loyal. And uh, Paul ended up paying the ultimate price uh, for his relationship with God. But this church, an amazing little church, a weak church uh, by uh, by all appearances, and yet in God's mind they were great because they were willing to be obedient to Christ and they were willing to be loyal to Christ. And that leads me to the last thought this this evening, and that is the declarations to the Christians. Here Christ gives and declares some things to the believers there in that church, some things that hopefully were great encouragement and maybe even a great challenge to them. And and I hope we can glean uh, and be encouraged and challenged from these same things as well. Verse number 9, he says, Behold, make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet and to know that I have loved thee. And so he says, first of all, he declared his judgment upon the wicked. He declared his judgment upon the wicked. He said, look, it's these these who are causing problems, these who are lying and and are not doing the truth, I'm going to make them to come and worship before thy feet to know that I have loved thee. And uh, I'm going to make it right. And uh, I want to encourage us. I know that sometimes as we look at culture and we look at the wicked who may be succeeding or seemingly succeeding, it can get discouraging. There's a wonderful uh, psalm that is easy to relate to, especially in America today. Psalm uh, 73, if you would turn over there uh, briefly tonight. Psalm 73. Verse number one. Here, this is uh, Asaph, and uh, he writes, he's the author, human author of this of this particular psalm. And he says in verse 1, Truly God is good to Israel, even to such as are of a clean heart. But as for me, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped. For I was envious of the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Do you ever feel that way? You see these celebrities, you see all these athletes who mock the name of Christ and are getting all these multi-million dollar contracts. And I mean, they just have money thrown at them left and right. They get all these sponsorships and it's just amazing how much money they're, 
accumulating in a very short amount of time, and they couldn't be further from, uh, from, from Christ. For I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Have you ever been there? I sure have. Verse 4 says, For there are no bands in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men. Like, they seem to have the perfect life, right? I mean, I follow them on Instagram, and boy, their life seems just so wonderful. They have all these new clothes. They have all this wonderful makeup. I mean, look at them. They're just beautiful. And uh, their lives are so perfect. They're not in trouble as other men. Neither are they plagued like other men. Therefore, pride compass them about as a chain. Violence covereth them as a garment. Their eyes stand out with fatness. They have more than heart could wish. Boy, doesn't this describe so many celebrities in our nation today? They are corrupt. Speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. You listen to some of these athletes and they just spew out pride. Well, it goes on, verse 9, They set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue walketh through the earth. Therefore his people return hither, and waters of a full cup are wrung out to them. And they say, How doth God know, and is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly who prosper in the world. They increase in riches. Verily, I... And here the the psalmist is discouraged, right? He says, Verily, I have cleansed my heart in vain. I have washed my hands in innocency. For all the day long have, have I been plagued and chastened every morning. He's like, I've tried to live right, and look at my life. It's less than ideal. Verse 15, If I say I will speak thus, behold, I should offend against the generations of thy children. When I thought to know this, it was too painful for me. Now I'm glad that the Psalm doesn't end there. In fact, verse 17 is kind of the turning point of the psalm. He says, Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then understood I their end. He said, I realize that what they're experiencing, all this wonderful blessing that they seem to be enjoying, is fleeting. It's temporary. It's going to burn up someday, and it's going to be all over. Surely thou didst set them in slippery places. Thou castest them down into destruction. How are they brought into desolation as in a moment? They are utterly consumed with terrors. And certainly we've seen some celebrities who have so much, who have been caught in a scandal and it's all gone in a moment. We've seen that happen even in recent days. But ultimately, even if they make it to 90 years old and, and they die a natural death and, it's, and they have a whole bunch of riches, I'm telling you, they're going to still be judged. And then he said in verse 20, As a dream, when one waketh, so, O Lord, when thou wakest, thou shalt despise their image. Thus my heart was grieved and I was pricked in my reins. So foolish was I and ignorant. I was as a beast before thee. Nevertheless, I'm continually with thee. Thou hast holding me by my right hand. Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel and afterward receive me to glory. And then this famous verse that I'm sure most of us have heard and known and maybe even memorized. The context of this verse is interesting, right? Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that, uh, that I desire beside thee. 
Well, things have changed in the psalmist's heart, haven't they, since verse number one. There is a great change because he sees the Lord and the fact that he's the one that they, he needs to be seeking and, and uh, finding his fulfillment in, not in the things that this world has to offer. My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart. My portion forever, for lo, they that are far from thee shall perish. Thou hast destroyed all them that go a-whoring from thee. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all thy works. A tremendous psalm that helps us and encourages us as we see perhaps the wicked around us have great success and great prosperity. The Lord declares to the church here in Philadelphia in verse number 9 that he is going to uh, judge the wicked. And uh, I want to encourage us, not that we should be looking forward to that day when the wicked get judged by the Lord, uh, but he's going to make things right. I'm glad for that. Not only does he declare his judgment upon the wicked in this passage, but he also declares his imminent return for his own. In verse number uh, 11, he says, Behold, I come quickly. He says, I'm coming back for you. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 14 and verse number 3, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. He promises he's coming back, and it could happen at any moment. Really, the rapture of the church is the next thing on God's calendar. There's nothing that needs to happen in prophecy before he comes back for his church. So it could be tonight before we load the van and head down to Florida. We could be heading up to heaven instead. It could happen any moment. It could, it could happen a thousand years from now or even beyond that, or it could happen tonight. It's imminent. 1 Thessalonians chapter number 4. I'll just uh, read this quick little passage here talking about the rapture of the church because it is meant to encourage us. It's meant to comfort us. In verse 13 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, it says, I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain in the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. And here it is, for the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. And then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words, and they are indeed comforting, to know that one day we're going to be rescued out of this uh, sin-sick world, and we're going to be in the presence of uh, our Lord forevermore, and also with those who have gone before us. That's going to be a wonderful day, and I'm looking forward to it. And so to this church, he promises and declares his imminent return for his own, and we should take great comfort in that as well. And then he also declares his call for faithfulness. In verse number 11, again, Behold, I come quickly, and then he says, Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. He calls us to a life of faithfulness, to hold fast and to persevere. 
Uh, don't misunderstand. This isn't the perseverance of the saints to where we need to hold on to our salvation. No, that's the Lord's job. He takes care of that. But we need to stay faithful in that we talked about it a little bit this morning. Hanging in there until He calls us home. So He declares His call for faithfulness and He also declares His promise to the overcomers. In verse number 12, again, Him that overcometh. And we mentioned last week, those who overcome are those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. And our faith that produces action helps us to overcome the challenges and difficulties that we face. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God. And I'll just go ahead and read the promise and we'll be done tonight. I'm not going to comment on it because I don't have a great understanding of exactly what all of this means. But again, I invite you to do your own study and to dive deeper into this. But him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God and he shall go out no or go no more out, and I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. Beautifully written. Again, I don't know all the implications of all that's written there, uh, but it is a tremendous promise to those who do uh, believe on Christ and then live their Christian life in action based on their faith in Christ. And then again, verse 13, we'll end it here. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. We do need to hear what he says, and then we need to heed what he says. So I hope that the thoughts we've talked about tonight have uh, the Lord has worked in your heart. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for this letter to this wonderful church family. Lord, a little church family. Uh, or church family with little strength anyway. Uh, could have been great number, but probably not. And yet they were, they were praised in this passage. They had no rebuke from our Lord, and I'm thankful for that. Lord, help us. We may not be great in number here at Cornerstone, but Lord, help us to do what this church did. Lord, help us to be obedient to the Word of God. Help us to be obedient to Christ. When you uh, point something out in our lives that needs to be changed, help us to be obedient. To not delay that obedience, but to do it right away. And then, Lord, help us to be loyal to you. To not be ashamed of you and, and to not forsake you when times get tough. But, Lord, to stay faithful and loyal to the name of our dear Lord. And thank you again for our opportunity to be together tonight to discuss these things. In Jesus' name. Amen.